Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers. The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring do in their mission to capture sound. These people ultimately changed the way that we listen and, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, Let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh, I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust. I wouldn't consider either as particularly gramophone geeks or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg, who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> So why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast uh, music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo. This is The Sound of the Hound. (laughs) Welcome to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. I'm Dave Holly. I'm James Hall. Um, And this week we're talking about another uh, recording hero of ancient times. And this is one of my favourites. This this is a guy called Russell Hunting. Russell Hunting was uh, an actor originally, American. But he manages to get caught up in the recording business on both sides of the Atlantic. And he gets to become quite friendly with our friend Fred Geisberg. Mr. Geisberg. um, And ends up ultimately owning a record company. But what what I love about him is that he's absolutely struggling to find a successful content for this new recording device. I've got a quote here from a guy called Patrick Feaster, who's a, who's a music historian, really interesting guy, specialised in this area. And he's talking about the phonograph, but it applies to all recording, really. And he says, early uses of the phonograph were incredibly experimental. People were trying pretty much everything, trying to figure out what they could put on these recordings to make a book. Everything from hymns and prayers at one end to obscenity at the other. <laughs> well, that's apt, isn't it? Yeah. He was I- a... He was a slightly dark character, you get the impression, don't you? Geisberg knows of him. When when Geisberg first joins the um, uh, Edison's company, Hunting has already made a few phonograph uh, cylinders. Back in America, isn't it? Yeah, back in America. Before he came to London. Yeah. So, so you know, they're trying music on, on, this, on this medium. But um, Hunting's idea is, is effectively a sketch show. So he has... He has um, a character called Michael Casey, and then he invo- that he creates what, what, what Geisberg describes as rapid-fire crosstalk between two Irish characters, uh, with Hunting taking both parts. I've, I've listened to them. You could hear some available online, and they are very quick, to be sure, to be sure. Um, you know, they're, they're 45 seconds long or a minute and a half long. Is the long. any good? Uh, it's he... better than mine. <laughs> yes, no, no, it is. It, does, it, it sounds very much like uh, Irish guys. Um, in fact, they became quite successful, um, such that 
other people started putting out Michael Casey records of their own, nothing to do with Russell Hunting. Pretending to be Michael Casey. Well, just, I, I guess, copyright law yeah. didn't, didn't cover this area off, and, and so people just copied Michael Casey and put out their own records. And I am glad to see so many faces in front of me. I want to say above one thing that I am not here as a representative of the Republican Party. Neither am I a representative of the Democratic Party. He moves on then. He moves on. The, the quote from Patrick Feaster talks about obscenity at the other end of the recording scale. And this is what I do like this story. Russell then tries a series of obscene records. And he, ha- he has various names of characters that are telling lewd stories and, and titillating stories. Uh, one, one of which is Manly Tempest. <laughs> um, and the other one is Willie Fatand. <laughs> um, And they became very popular in those... Before people got players in their homes um, in the 1890s in America, they often only encountered recorded sound in in booths in circuses or in in, um, amusement arcades. And and, um, they put a nickel... In, in in the machine, they have a, a speaker that would uh, kind of a, a like a an earpiece, head, earpiece like yeah. a headphone, yeah, that would go into one ear, and then they could hear the recording. So you can, and apparently these these slightly pornographic um, uh, recordings were very successful in that. So it's like a sort of audio peep show, yes, with, with lots. I guess it's a bit like what the butler saw, yeah. isn't it? When when people watch those kind of slightly titillating, not quite films, you know, um, yeah, cartoon type things. So so. The trouble was, they were so successful, he came to the attention of this, this fantastically named the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, <laughs> which, which was a, a, an organisation set up by a guy called Comstock, who was a very, he was a sort of guardian of the nation's morals type character, who actually became, I was reading about him, he became a bit of a hero to J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and... Um, who was the guy that did the led the anti-communist? McCarthy. McCarthy as well was very interested right. in. You know, th- th- this this Comstock of Comstock of the Suppression of Vice Society was 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 one of the early prototypes of those two guys. But what what Comstock did, he tricks Russell to to come to his hotel and re- make make lewd recordings at his design and request. And then as soon as he's made these recordings. He takes the recordings around the corner to the police station, plays them back to the police office, and they come and um, arrest Russell Hunting. Entrapments, pure and simple. And so then he ended up having three months in prison in New York. So, you know, a bit of a character, this guy. I found this little story about Russell Hunting. And this is is when he was still in the States, I think in Baltimore or Washington. I can't quite work it out. Mid-1890s, he was stage manager of a burlesque show at a theatre called the Alba Theatre. Uh, the show's called Faust Up to Date. And Hunting, he played the part of Mephistopheles, and he dressed in red tights and was shot up from the bowels of the theatre into the midst of a bevy of dancers. That sounds kind of cool, actually, doesn't that, it? That sounds a bit Russell Hunter. That sounds yeah. a bit Russell Hunter. Yeah. But because I think Fred then, when, in the early stages of the gramophone company of North America, before, before he moved across the UK... Um, they put together a series of records so that they could show what the new gramophone was capable of and they took them on the road when they were raising money and a chunk of those recordings were done by um, Russell Hunting. So he added, I think he did a Michael Casey for them yeah. uh, and he did a couple of others 
Um, so that's the point where professionally Geisberg, Geisberg and meets, meets and he meet he meets him when he's in that show. Um, if I remember correctly, as the so, devil, yeah, as the devil. So, <laughs> so again, you know, he's he's already been a you know Irish stand-up, um, a pornographer, and the devil. And at that point, Geisberg brings him on board. I imagine a man with immense charisma, probably quite full of himself. Yes, I think he's quite a tall guy, dark haired does look a bit Irish, but yes, he's 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 one of these. He's a hustler, isn't he? He's he's trying new things. Um, he's desperate to make money. There's, there's, a, there's actually probably a high water mark of creativity in his career on um, recordings yeah. where, where he comes to during the Boer War the, and can never know how to say that the Boer War or the Boer War Boer, it's Boer. like Bowie or Bowie I always, I always get him wrong <laughs> Boer the Boer War Boer, Boer, Boer. the Boer War the English would say the Boer, the Boer War, war. Yeah. Um, this is when he came over to London wasn't it yeah so he's over this side of the Atlantic uh, at this point this is 1899 so the Boer War is is going on in South Africa, and he comes up with an idea what he calls a descriptive record. It's sort of like a, it's 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 almost like a mini drama, isn't it? Played out over two minutes, and it's I mean it's quite an extraordinary thing to listen to. It's called the departure of the troop ship, and it's sort of in, in two or three parts, and you can hear the crowds on the quay, and the troops marching up uh, up onto the boat, and then there's there's bands playing in the background, and it, there's a voiceover. It's it's like a piece of propaganda, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it, a it's like a sign up for the war type propaganda. It, it's, with a, it's schmaltzy and sentimental and and patriotic. They they have a little bit of land of hope and glory yes, at one point. The band the, plays. Yeah, it's 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 a. It must be the first piece of recorded. It is propaganda, isn't it? Yeah, which kind of puts everything that hunting did in a slightly different light. You know, all the all the racy stuff. He he was actually also capable of doing. Really, quite sort of serious, weighty, weighty things as well. Yeah, but I guess it you know plays to his skills as an actor. Yeah, he's he's also been a uh, the leader of a theatre group. So you know he's 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 been a stage director. He's been in recording for well half a dozen years at this point. Mm. So he's he's probably one of the most expo- experienced creators of content. In the world at that point, yes, yes. he may be the most experienced at creating yes. innovative new stuff. And there's a description here of 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 the departure of the troopship, what it actually sounded like, and we'll hear it in a bit. But crowds in the case, bands playing the troops as they walked up the gangplank, bugles sounding all ashore, farewell cries of don't forget to write, troops singing home sweet home, which gradually receded into the distance and the faraway mournful hoot of the steamer whistle. I yeah. mean, the description of the description itself is evocative, isn't it? Yeah. became hugely popular hugely popular i struggle to imagine somebody playing the thing more than once though <laughs> yes it's a bit yeah. like comedy records for me i know oh, i know so this great new album you've got to hear you've got to listen <laughs> to it this is people going up a, a gangplank getting on the board a band plays and then everybody waves them off and and why would you play it more than once? But I, imagine if you didn't live near a quayside and you know you were slightly removed geographically from it would be probably because tv didn't exist did it it would be your first or be a very uh, uh, sort of, um, I don't know, quite an emotional response, I imagine, to hear that. 
because you wouldn't have seen it and you wouldn't have heard it before and I guess the war's so far away you, and you, the war's so far you away you just know some of our lads are over there yeah you read reports in the newspaper how else do you get a feeling for um, what's going on I guess this gives you a yeah, an emotional response. But I, I imagine recruitment offices up and down the country played it. I mean, that's, yeah. that was obviously its purpose, wasn't it? Well, I think they sold them as well. I, th- I think this was one of the biggest hits, um, certainly in Russell's career up to this point. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a big hit. It brought tears to the eyes of thousands, apparently. <laughs> I'm sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that, I think that's... that. It, if you listen to it, it you know, it is... It's it's a very interesting use of of the recording medium, as as they're just learning what can they can and can't go on this thing. Seeing what sticks, really, yeah. aren't they? Throwing everything at the wall and seeing what. Uh, yeah. My my final um, uh, Russell hunting story, the, the Russell the Rogue hunting, um, is later on. He he sort of starts. I mean, I guess he's doing it with the troop ship um, record. He's he's becoming an A and R man. He's he's finding content not just playing it himself but he's finding other people to put content on records and he he's he's working with a guy called louis sterling louis sterling and and sterling ends up as managing director of emi in 90 the first managing director of emi in 1931 when when emi is created but at this point i think he's running his own label Mm -hmm. and he's also working with geisberg on I think one of the su- well, not the gramophone company, but one the, of the, the sub labels, the Zonophone company, the Zonophone. The, I think yeah. it was, yeah. But but Russell's also working with her. I'm not sure in what capacity. I do know he ends up buying Sterling's record company at one point. Um, so it's called Sterling Records, and he changes it to Russell Hunting Records. That, but that's that's sort of towards the end but of the 1900s. This period must have been a hotbed of deals and side yeah. projects, and yeah. and you know. Labels and sub-labels. A bit like and, today. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. But what? What? what the, the, so there's a, there's a, there was a big recording star, star, a Scottish guy called Harry Launder, who he, even as a kid I remember "Stop Your Tickling Jock." It Stop was it, it was like such a funny title. I remember that title being played um, not by Harry Launder, uh, someone like Bernard Cribbins or somebody. Or but it was Harris used to do version. Was it Lauder or Launder? Lauder. Lauder. Sorry, Harry Lauder is the guy. L a u d e r. And he used to dress up in 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 tam- and, and and kilts. And oh, he's a stereotypical the, yes. cartoon version yes. of, a, of a Scotsman. Of a Scot. He was an Edinburgh man, wasn't he? I love a lassie. That was his first big one. I and then stop your tickling jock. But he was signed to the Gramophone Company, so the main label that that Geisberg was recording for. And then. I think they got frustrated that he didn't record very much. Yes, he wasn't particularly prolific, was no. he? No. But and sold loads of records. And he, he was record. very expensive. <laughs> yes. Um, so Russell had this great idea, which which um, Sterling, um, who I think was running Zonophone, and Geisberg, who was in control of all the recording, um, thought was a cracker, which was to get somebody to mimic him. So they created a, a sort of second Scotsman, it was actually a, a, an, Australian an Australian guy, Peter, another Australian. Peter Dawson, this baritone from Australia. Yeah, and and um, they create what was the name they called him? Hector Hector Grant. Hector Grant. Which you, if you're asked to come up with a sort of fake Scottish name, you probably couldn't Ochenu, really. Hector Ochenu, Grant. Ochenu. Yeah. So yeah, so they 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 got a gu- they, they they convinced an Australian to pretend to be a Scotsman to rival the this, great Scotsman. The great Scotsman, yeah. and they recorded the hell out of him, didn't they? 
He churned them out, churned them nice out. and cheap, and, and um, yeah, on, on on a sub label called the Zonophone Company, which was actually still owned, which was part of the Gramophone Company. Yeah, yeah. so they basically had big artists on the main label, not recording that much. Yep, and a fake version of that artist on their sub label recording loads. That seems to be what's That's, happening. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary. So they're actually ripping off their own artists. They're ripping off their own artist, but I think the records on the Zonophone Company were cheaper. Than the gramophone company. Record. Oh, were so they? It was, it, was ah. like a, it was like a cut price. I'm sure like EMI, paperback. Yeah, I mean EMI had a sort of cut price label, did you? Yeah, they, they, they famously had music for pleasure. That which, in fact, you know, the, some of the first records I ever bought were um, things like themes from the westerns and themes from war films and Beatles rock and roll. And <laughs> but they were all not particularly great records, but they were really cheap on music for pleasure. And appa- apparently, this came about because Geisberg was listening to this. Australian chap Dawson doing a Scottish accent just as a kind of warm-up in the studio and he went up to it and he said Peter can you do any more like that I mean can you sing Scottish and he did and that's how it started and I wonder how many of this apparently he became a huge star this fake yeah. Scotsman fake version of a fake Scotsman it's the first pop star that wasn't first, really was a pop star. Well, Millie Vanilli. Do you remember Millie yeah. Vanilli? They didn't even sing at all. They Boney M. Boney M. didn't sing on theirs either, did they? So actually, this this wasn't quite as bad as them. No, he was just but ripping somebody off. He was just ripping someone. But there's an interesting parallel with today, because Spotify have been accused of creating fake artists and fake songs. They have, haven't to get they? Their, yes. yes, to get their... So on their, on their, on their playlists, yeah. you can hear many artists that sound very like... I don't know, Radiohead, or very like the Chemical Brothers, or very, you know, you name them. Yeah. Um, because obviously it means they don't have to pay a royalty. If they own this slightly sub version of whoever, um, they don't have to pay a penny when people listen. In fact, they make money when people listen to it. Of course, Spotify deny they have any fake artists, we should add. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true. That, that, I mean, there's a, there's a, a tradition... You know, my day job, which is a music publisher, of publishers um, having writers that write soundalikes, so that you, if you haven't got a, a Bond song, he can. Your this particular guy can write you a Bond theme that sounds da, da, just like a Bond theme. Yes, it's slightly, yeah, so just slightly it. off. Just change one. And actually, that's the tradition that this reaches back into, isn't it? It's 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 the not quite kosher. It's the not quite kosher. Yes. But actually, it's good enough. Mm. I mean, it's, 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 it's actually a, a bit like what happened with Millie Vanilli became a huge success. Um, he not only sold a lot of records, Hector Grant, or Peter Dawson dressed as Hector Grant, um, he ended up having to go out on the road and be Hector Grant. Um, and th- there's a lovely story with, with Geisberg sitting down when Harry Lauder with was Lauder, older. Yes. And they were reminiscing about um, about Lauder's early days, and they were talking about this guy that came up as a rival, Hector Grant. <laughs> and um, and Lauder th- is convinced he saw him in in um, in Edinburgh, and he's convinced that he is actually a Scotsman. Yes, yes, no, he so says, he's, I've, he's, got, I've he, got the. Com- I won't do the Scottish accent here. Oh, but, go on. Um, so Lauder, um, Lauder turns to Fred and says, "I'm not going to do this. It's terrible. Did you not? Did you not know a chap by the name of Hector Grant? He had a grand voice." He must have been killed in the war. Fred grinned and said, don't you know, Harry, that Hector Grant was Peter? And and um, and Harry Lauder just laughs and says, no, I saw him in Glasgow. He was a much older man. I mean, it, you know, this is great. This is hilarious stuff. And what's kind of interesting is that 120 years later, 
the same tricks are being used by the industry. You know, nothing has changed, really. I mean, the names of the companies have changed and the and the medium has changed. But, you know, making fake artists and trying to kind of hoodwink consumers, that hasn't changed at all, has it? No. And in 120 years' time, we'll still be doing, we'll still it. Be doing it. It's called the record oh, business, dear. <laughs> but isn't that fun? You know, yeah. you know, we talk, you know, we're talking about Victorian London here. And those tricks, yeah. But, but you know, I, I'm, I'm going to shamelessly pull us back onto Russell Hunting, who is supposedly the subject of this, who was involved in that scam. He, I just read all these things he's doing. He's a contemporary bloke. You know, yeah. he, he's a chancer. He's, he's having a bit of a go. He's a bit of an entrepreneur. He's a bit of a ne'er-do-well. And, and it just actually brings it home to you how, how little people change, really. Yeah, yeah. They're just the same as we are, just with different technology. Yeah. But also among the kind of slightly weird and dark stuff he did, he did the the, the, the departure of the troop ship, which was, you know, groundbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was it's, almost it's, drama. It was almost drama as well as propaganda. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think if you were to pull out 20 or 30 key recordings, of which you'd have things like A Day in the Life, you know, sort of Sergeant Peppers, which yeah. was just something, below, or, or, you know, those kind of things. This has got to be one of those key yeah. techno, you know, packing in that amount of drama into two two minutes. I yeah. think it was, wasn't and it? And in terms of firsts, yeah, and at know, first, I mean, completely blending voices and crowds and and music and just atmos- sound effects, and for a purpose other than pure yeah. entertainment, yeah, which yeah, which which it clearly was, yeah. And I wa- I wonder the extent to which it worked. You know, did they sign up x hundred slash thousand more troops? Because of it, how many I'd people love he, to know? How many people did he send to his death? <laughs> On that cheerful <laughs> note, this is the sound of the hound. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound of the Hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode, please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artefacts we talk about in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.